Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, kitchen chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is your host, Margaret McSweeney, and I am just so delighted and honored that you are joining me in my kitchen today. As many of you know, full disclosure, I am probably the world's worst home chef, but I am on a culinary journey determined to learn how to cook healthy as well uh, at middle age and to really savor each day. So with that in mind, I am just so thrilled about today's guest here on Kitchen Chat, Scott Malbray, who is the editor of Cooking Light magazine and is just, I, I'm going to call him the guru of gourmet. He not only has a very impressive 17-year award-winning um, record of, with Time, Inc. and has launched uh, magazines, websites, editorial divisions for the company and, and run them and has written about food and nutrition for more than 20 years, even a restaurant reviewer and book author, radio commentator, columnist, and most recently, he has co-authored Cooking Lights, The New Way to Cook, uh, which received a James Beard Foundation Cookbook Award this year, which is so exciting. Can't wait to chat about that. He is also an avid uh, photographer and has a new book out. We'll chat about that. But also, what really is intriguing me, um, listeners, is what he has launched uh, with Cooking Light uh, via social media, which is a social diet. Cooking Light Food Lover's Social Diet, and, and we're going to really chat with him about that. Um, also mention and highlight some exciting things that are going on at Cooking Light Magazine, uh, especially this wonderful uh, contest that is coming up and a very special story that Scott would love to share on that. But um, also, I am going to get to your questions. Thank you so much, everyone, for sending in such great questions. I'm just so delighted. So keep those coming and, and keep in touch. But without further ado, I would like to send a very, very personal welcome to Scott for being on Kitchen Chat. Welcome to Kitchen Chat, Scott. Thanks so much, Margaret. Really excited to be here talk with you. This is terrific, and congratulations on such amazing culinary accomplishments. I, I just am in awe at, at um, your breadth of knowledge and, and it, it just insight into all things culinary. So this, this is really exciting to have you on. Delighted. Oh, great. Well, first of all, Scott, because there's so much to chat about, but first of all, I'd like to to share with the listeners this whole uh, beginning and genesis of the Cooking Light Food Lovers Social Diet. How did this get started? Well, I mean, it got started because um, 
partly because I have a fantastic test kitchen one floor below me, and I have to go down there every day. It's a terrible burden uh, and taste all the, the great food that's um, in development. And, of course, recipes you know, uh, do require multiple tests, so you end up uh, eating a, a, quite a bit of food. And I found myself um, you know, about 20, 25 pounds overweight. And, and I, nobody to my face would call me fat, but I certainly called myself uh, that uh, in private. I started to feel, uh, and I'm very much not into characterizing people by their weight, and we've never been a diet magazine. Um, but you know, when, uh, I live in Birmingham, Alabama, but I'm from New York, um, or at least lived there a long time. And when you walk down the caverns of, of New York, you are confronted by one billion mirrors every block, and you see yourself over and over again. And I, I had tried to follow, uh, you know, it basically seemed to me at some point I have to practice uh, what I preach here. And I had eaten healthy for, for a long time. The problem was not healthy eating. The problem was just a bit too much eating. And I finally vowed uh, in the spring of this year that I was going to lose 20 pounds in 20 weeks. And then because uh, I'm a guy and because I'm an editor, I like projects and I like teams, I decided I would make it public in front of my 7 million readers and 2 million subscribers and on the internet and, uh, and that I'd get a team going and see if I could find some people on, on, in New York and down here who might be interested in doing a sort of an experiment. And that's where the social term comes from. It, it's a group of people who can talk to each other using new technology uh, and, and apps that allows people to really do a DIY uh, weight loss group. So that's where it came from. I basically wanted to be able to get back into medium-sized shirts, and I felt, even though my blood cholesterol wasn't bad, I just felt like, you know, I'm not 35 or even 45 anymore. I better get with the program, and then see if we could learn some things that we might want to teach to our uh, readers and our online uh, users. Yes, and I can't wait to talk all about that. But first of all, just a quick step back. Listeners, as many of you know, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, so this is just so special to connect with someone who is living there in Birmingham and how exciting about the test kitchen as well. And kind of on a side note, listeners, about Cooking Light magazine, 50% of the recipes published are developed in that test kitchen. So I definitely want to kind of uh, have a conversation later uh, in the kitchen chat about your test kitchen. But first of all, my congratulations on what an inspiration you are, not only to all of these listeners, but to me personally. And, you know, I have... um, gained quite a bit of weight. I'm a breast cancer survivor as of one year, so excited about that. But it caused me, unfortunately, to be a little bit more sedentary, and these pounds just creep up so quickly. So I am going to follow your lead, and I'm going to announce to my listeners, and this is so hard, um, but I, I do want to get that accountability out there and officially join Cooking Lights, um, Food Lover Social Diet. But you know what, listeners? I am overweight. I need to lose at least 20 pounds as well. Um, my doctor has said not only my breast surgeon that, you know, overweight can, you know, put you at a greater risk for recurrence with with my breast cancer. But also my uh, regular doctor said, you know what, I don't want to put you on heart meds. Uh, One of my brothers passed away from a heart attack and my dad passed away early at an age from a heart attack. So 
I am officially announcing today and becoming very vulnerable. I know how you're feeling, Scott, that I am going to begin a social diet. So thank you for helping me have the courage to announce this on air to to my listeners and and followers. So thank you. Well, that's great because that that was, in the end, the idea was that we'd hopefully inspire um, and then be able to start supporting um, uh, people like you who are, you know, are, are doing exactly what you're doing. We, <clears throat> I should say that, you know, we have never even really much used the word diet in Cooking Light over the 26-year history of the magazine. Right. I've only been here for three, but I'm a student of the of where the magazine came from and what its philosophy is, and I'm a complete believer in it. And we are not a weight loss magazine, but we're perfectly aware, you know, we're a healthy eating, a balanced eating, and now we feel very strongly that the, 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 all the exciting stuff that's happening in food in America, the, the revolution that's happening in food is very much a part of what we've been talking about, the local, the artisanal, the farmer's market, more whole grains, all those things, global flavors, all those things that are now not just happening in New York and, uh, and Chicago and, and, and San Francisco, they're happening everywhere, including Birmingham, Alabama. So that's what our DNA is. It's healthy eating and innovative, um, not gimmicky, uh, healthy cooking, you know, really innovative, flavor-forward cooking. But the reality is that, um, A, there is obviously an obesity problem in the country, but B, if you have a weight loss goal, whether it's five pounds or 25 pounds, you probably need a plan. You probably need to not just eat healthy, but watch your portions, watch your calories in, and watch your calories out. So my philosophy going in here was I'm not giving up anything. I love food. I am a food person. I live to eat. Um, I was a restaurant reviewer for, for a decade as you mentioned, and I simply uh, get a lot of the joy in my life uh, out of cooking and eating. So I wasn't going to give that stuff up. So the puzzle became, can I use the cooking light eating philosophy and layer on a plan that is not boring and repetitive and soul-killing, but which in fact uh, allows me to get as much joy out of my food and then lose the, 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 the weight. And I should say, by the way, I reached the goal. Uh, I reached the goal in 18 weeks, and um, I'm actually upping it a little bit more because there's still some shirts I want to get in to go for 25, but I'm not a manic dieter, although I will say that there is one of the things we can talk about is that when you get to your goal, there is a fear that sets in that you're not going to be able to maintain. And that, of course, is the the bigger challenge. Yes, with the maintenance. And, and I'm just so intrigued by how you have done this via social media and via the apps. Sure. Uh, and so, yes, if we could just kind of, um, if, if you wouldn't mind sharing some highlights of the plan, the apps, sure. uh, what has worked? Well, the main thing when I got together with this group of people who were interested in doing this with me, we basically realized that we wanted to be in, in, in touch with each other and essentially a set up sort of the same thing as a kind of a Weight Watchers support group, but we weren't going to be even in the same city and we didn't like the idea of weigh-ins and frankly that sort of gave us the creeps. But what we did like was the idea of being able to support each other and uh, you know uh, what it turned out was, of course, that there are a lot of apps that can help you with that. There's really two things you want to monitor in in a weight loss plan. One is your calories in, that's what you eat, and the other is your calories out, and that's what your exercise, how much you burn in a day. And those two things, it's a good idea to keep track of. And fortunately, there are multiple apps 
that help you do that much more easily than even even three years ago. Like the problem with calorie diaries and eating diaries has often been that they're very complicated and how do I know what this food is and if I eat out in a restaurant and it becomes difficult. My Fitness Pal is the is the um, the app that we like and uh, and are now working a little bit with. We've struck up a relationship with them. They have a tremendous database of foods, including a lot of cooking light recipes. So you can go in there pretty easily. Um, input what you ate. You can make some rough guesses if you don't know what the calories were, but if it's a commercial food or a packaged food, you can often get the exact Chobani yogurt you know, in a second. So, so suddenly keeping track of what you eat has become much easier. Um, on the uh, fitness side, there are a bunch of different things you can get. Uh, we use something called the Up Band from a company called Jawbone fits around your wrist and it measures your steps, but there's also Fitbit and Nike has one. What these do, they're not as good if you're uh, um, doing, say, swimming, um, well, partly because some of them are waterproof, but, but if you're a runner or a walker, if that's how you're planning and uh, to, to, to burn your exercise, to burn your, um, your calories, and if you set a goal of, say, 10,000 steps a day, which is a very common goal, it's about five miles, it will keep track, not only keep track of those calories, but it will talk to your food diary and tell your food diary that you burned 350 calories and so you're allowed 350 more. Um, so that's an amazing thing, right? They're talking to each other. You don't have to do any, uh, you can just turn on, just turn on both apps and suddenly you know what you've burned and what you've eaten and how much you have left. And, and, the, and is it ahead. easy, I'm sorry, is it easy to just, when you're talking about apps, because I know a lot of us are technically challenged out there, um, <laughs> including myself, so you download these apps and so it's on your like on your iPhone or whatever yes. you're carrying. So it is kind of a mobile diary. Correct. And then do you just uh, type into it? Yeah, uh, you just you literally. Yeah, uh, and and it, you know. So for example, um, I think most of us tend to often eat the same things for breakfast. That's something very common in human behavior, especially on the weekday. So I like shredded wheat with, um, you know, 1% milk and I like half a banana on it. And I tend to have something like that or oatmeal, a whole grain, some, some kind of whole grain breakfast. I can either call up shredded wheat and it'll give me the calories or I can record the exact thing I have and then just call it up the next day as yesterday's breakfast or you know, so it allows you to do that. Any works on any smartphone, and if you don't have a smartphone, you can do it on a laptop or a desktop as well. It's easier with a smartphone because you, it's best to input the calories, uh, the foods you eat, right when you um, when you do it. Having been a restaurant reviewer, I have a weird, I've got a terrible memory in general, but I have a weird ability to remember what I ate, you know, a week ago. So it's not, I can even at, sit down at 6 o'clock at night and input everything I eat um, pretty easily. Um, and then, you know, the exercise thing's pretty automatic. If you exercise, it knows. And by the way, if you don't exercise, it tells you you're not exercising. It starts buzzing every 30 minutes to remind oh, no. you to get up and at least walk <laughs> around the block. Um, but here's the element that makes it social. That's that any individual can do what I'm describing. But what these apps allow you to do is also join up into a group. So the eight people that set off on this journey with me, um, you know, 18, 20 weeks ago are all part of my little circle and they can see how much I exercise. And frankly, some of them can see how much I eat because I actually have made that public. Some people don't choose not to make that public because they, they don't want to share what they eat. But the point is, it's not for sarcastic comments. What it really is, is people support each other. So it's like, I, you know, one of our persons is in New York and she does a tremendous amount of walking. She's like an energizer bunny. She'll do 20,000 steps in a day walking around Manhattan and everybody's cheering her on. And 
the, the psychology of, of dieting and, and the success of Weight Watchers is due to group support. And that's the social part. Social media and smartphones have just made that possible. It's been happening for decades using, you know, meeting rooms and telephones. But now with this great technology, it's essentially portable and you can make any group you want. And if you want to do it with five people in Australia, you can do that just as easily or relatives in Birmingham. You can build your own, we call it a DIY uh, diet group. And and so it's not as much about joining the cooking light social diet, although I'll tell you later that in 20, in next year, we're going to actually start uh, um, rolling out some actual diet plans for people who want them, uh, as much as it is just being able to connect with people. Yes. Um, it's just super important to be able to connect with people. People, it's very hard to have the discipline on your own to do something that is uh, about breaking habits, lifelong habits. Right. And what do you feel like the toughest lifelong habit for you to break was? That's an interesting question. You know, the toughest lifelong habit for me to break was the habit of not getting serious about doing this. And I did a whole blog. And by the way, if, if, um, if your uh, listeners want to go online and go to cookinglight.com slash weight loss, uh, they'll find uh, 25 or 30 blogs that really lay out the whole program. But what I talk about in one of my blogs very early on was the question of willpower um, versus motivation. I think that the word willpower is grossly over overused with regards to dieting. I don't think I lacked willpower. I had, you know, I would get up in the morning and, you know, look at myself in the mirror and say, well, today I'm going to eat less. And some days I would, some days I, I wouldn't. But I didn't overall lose any weight. And so I would start feeling guilty, as people do, and they feel like they lack willpower. As I suddenly, and for a reason that I can't quite describe, I decided to get serious about this and make this announcement and start this group. And since then, willpower has not been an issue. Motivation is an issue. I think a lot of people actually don't necessarily want to lose weight. They say they want to lose weight. They feel they want to lose weight, but they don't actually. They may want to, but they're not motivated to make that change. And the origins of willpower in the human soul are a big mystery, to, not willpower, of motivation are, are a mystery to me. I think when we use the word willpower, though, we're using sort of judgment of people. We're making ethical judgments. You lack willpower. You're weak. I don't believe that. Um, there may be an element for some people, but I really believe that the issue is really finding the motivation within you. And you gave a very coherent explanation of why you feel now that you have are motivated to do this. You have some good long-term reasons. You have some short-term reasons. You have some medical advice. You know, hopefully that comes together in something that coheres into motivation. So. I am sort of an, in a way, I'm, I'm calling this a post-diet diet in the sense that a lot of the language that's used with dieting around willpower and, and that kind of thing, and a lot of pejoratives, a lot of insults, and a lot of that kind of behavior, I have no time for. Right. Um, I think finding motivation and using a group to support motivation is what needs to happen, and I think that's tricky, but I think people need to be honest with themselves about whether they have that motivation or not, because I think it's easy to mistake you know, you genuflect to this, you say you want to do this, you say you want to do that. I would get up, as I said, every day and do that. But I, I for some reason, it, I wasn't ready to, to do it. Uh, and it became very clear one day that I was. And um, I can't tell you exactly where that came from. Uh, but once it happens and you can take advantage of these online tools and these apps and, and friends and coworkers, it, it's really as if a light goes on in the room and you can see much more clearly where you're supposed to go. Yes, a cooking light goes on in the room. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. And which leads me to another important question. We talked about the calories out 
Now right. let's talk about the calories in. And a couple of things. One, I, I just truly applaud you and Cooking Light because you've kind of given us a way how to lose the waste without losing the taste. So <laughs> this is going to be great. Yes, yeah. yes. So uh, a couple of things, and then we'll get to the listeners' questions. I know um, they're eager to have their questions answered as well. But in terms of the source of, okay, I, I have decided to do this. I am motivated. I have gotten the apps all together and everything. I've figured out how I'm going to do the calories out with the um, up band and 10,000 steps a day. How do I determine what the calories in, i.e., what is going to be my daily menu? Uh, what is your advice for that? Well, there's two, there's two issues. One is what's your daily calorie goal, and then the second thing is how are you going to meet that goal, and that's what you're talking about, which is your menu. And the goal thing is actually pretty easy to use these apps to discover now, and that's you just state how much you want to lose per week. You've got to make it rational and reasonable. I think a pound a week is the reasonable goal. And some people find that too little, but the reality is once you're three to five weeks in and you've lost that three to five, you're pretty motivated to go the rest of the 15 or whatever. Whereas, you know, okay, you can try to do two, but if your calorie gets down below 1200, it's dangerous. And frankly, um, you know, it, it's not, you're going to feel like you're starving yourself. So use I, what I would do, and you can use a doctor and I would advise anybody who's, uh, you know, who's at all concerned about this to follow medical advice on what what that calorie goal should be. But let's say you set a goal and it's 1,500 calories a day, for example. Then the question comes to what you asked, which is what? how do I fit that in? And how do I get everything I want? How do I get this delicious food and feel satisfied and feel and all of that on 1,500 calories when maybe you were eating, let's say, 1,800 or 2,000? And the answer to that is changing two things. And my friend Mark Bittman talks about how he did this sort of naturally without an actual program, but I think a lot of people need a little more direction, which is changing portions and changing proportions. So Portion changing is the critical thing in the American diet. People serve themselves too much food, and they serve themselves second helpings too often, and um, and, and and that's a big issue. And the way you control portions is by following recipes that describe what the portions are, and our recipes are all coded to to you know be, be modest portions. So a cup of pasta, not a cup and a half, not two cups. And when I first started measuring uh, out a cup of pasta, I was a little shocked at how little that seemed. That's cooked pasta, but once I surrounded it by the other factor, which is the change of proportions of other foods, I found it fully satisfying. In other words, you have more fresh tomato if it's the summer, a fresh heirloom tomato, tomato sauce on top of that. You have, you have a bigger salad with it. You uh, cut down the portions of meat, um, you know, that kind of thing. And we have a lot of tricks, like if we do a chicken parm out of a chicken breast, we're using a smaller chicken breast, but we're actually cutting it lengthwise so it's two thinner pieces and then we're pan frying both of those. So you're getting way more crispy surface than you ever had when you ate more chicken before. So we have a lot of tricks that you can rely on us to help you with that portion change. But the main thing is, you know, everybody knows there's some foods that are relatively free and those are the vegetables, free in terms of calories, low calorie. Um, but there's things you have to measure. If you're making a vinaigrette, you have to measure out how much olive oil you want. A, a, a tablespoon is perfectly reasonable. It's about 110 calories. But two tablespoons isn't. And, and if you rely on just hand pouring and casual cooking, I can bet we've done tests with our readers that the vast majority of people overserve and overestimate. They don't know what an ounce and a half of alcohol looks like. They don't really know. And they're not lazy. They're not dumb. They just don't have never really measured it. And so 
the, then, then the question becomes how much do you have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And again, our recipes are already keyed in on assumptions of what you should eat for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. So again, if you were to follow our recipes, we don't give out a plan per se. We basically say follow our recipes or similar recipes and eat in the portions that are prescribed and then enter that in. And most of our recipes are in my fitness pal. And you basically have a diet. You know, It's very different from, say, Weight Watchers, which gives you a very prescribed point system. Yes. We're, we're simply saying that our recipes are already coded for these portion sizes. Pay attention to portion, change proportion, follow what you eat and what you, how you exercise, and believe it or not, it won't feel like a diet. And that's great. You, as I said, you lose the waste without losing the taste. And right. and a quick question, because I know that you're a, an avid foodie and enjoy eating out. Do you also right. enjoy cooking? And has this social diet changed your own approach to cooking? Uh, well, uh, the answer is yes. I've been cooking since I was a teenager, and I grew up in Asia and all kinds of exciting places. Mm-hmm. So I have been a cook for a long time. I'm not a professional level cook. The people on my staff are better cooks than I am, but I'm I'm a, a, a happy and, and proud cook. Uh, yeah, my cooking has changed in the sense that um, uh, I uh, you know that proportion change means that when I go to the farmers market in the summer here, and we have a wonderful farmers market, I'm buying all even more vegetables than I used to. I'm going into Whole Foods or in our supermarket. I'm buying more whole grains, more farro, more quinoa, those kinds of things that I did before. But none of it is food that I didn't eat before because I've been a consistent cook, you know, for a long time. It's really more the portion issue and. Um, But you alluded to something that I think is actually a bigger challenge for a lot of people, which is eating out. Uh, And and that, that, um, my wife and I joke about the fact that for years she had been asking me if I wanted to share entrees. And I always had, you know, I always had this thing about sharing entrees that it somehow seemed cheap or that I wasn't getting enough or something. And and so I'd order a full entree and and then eat the whole thing. Uh, because I try to go to the best possible restaurants I can always and order the best thing on the menu and then I want to eat it all. I've just changed. We, we, you know, we, we get apps, we get salads, and then we tend to share, you know, an, an entree. Or if I order a whole entree, I'm, a, I'm definitely ordering um, a salmon on quinoa as opposed to lasagna or something like that. Um, but or we'll share it, as I said. And so that's, or I'll, finally, I'll leave food on the plate, which I just, frankly, I grew up in a clean your plate uh, yes. kid household, as I think I grew up in the Midwest of Canada, actually. And, you know, you were expected to clean your plate. Um, and the portions in restaurants were getting absurd in America. They're actually dialing back down in, in fine dining restaurants. They're getting much more reasonable and much, and they're changing the proportions of foods too. So pay attention to where you eat out. But we have ways of even eating out in chain restaurants and getting, you know, what should you eat at Starbucks and all that information is available at Cooking Light. And, and you do need to track it. And that food is important too. Um, You know, and if you go in and eat a big muffin, you're going to hit, you know, a really large muffin, you might hit 800 calories there. So you have to watch out. There are, there are time bombs out there um, in the commercial food world that you have to be careful about. Um, But it's all doable. And uh, the the revolution that's going on in cooking in America and in restaurants is hugely beneficial because there are many restaurants now that are much more interested in vegetable cooking than they ever were before. Yes. And I have two daughters who are vegetarians. So it's interesting, even with the younger, uh, they're both, you know, college age, they're even in the younger generation, there is a focus and interest on, you know, healthy eating and alternative uh, uh, absolutely my daughter 
Yes, my daughter, when she was from between about 14 to 17, she was a vegan, so I was cooking vegan for her. Um, and I didn't convert the entire family's diet to vegan, but I learned a fair amount about cooking vegan. And um, way before, that was you know 10 years ago, way before the current uh, excitement about vegan. So I, and I lived last month, last year for a month, I decided to live as a vegan just to oh. um, see what that, what that would be like. And I enjoyed it. Wow. Oh, well, that that is so interesting, and that is a challenge, and and but a delicious one. So that is great. Well, I know I have so many listener questions to get to, Scott. If we can um, focus on that for just a bit, and and tie that into sure, the diet and and uh, cooking light. Um, a listener in Chicago. Uh, wrote in saying, in trying to make classic dishes healthier, somehow they don't taste as good without the fat. Should I get rid of all the fat, eliminate it all, or reduce it? And on the side, she said, she is a gourmet eater who doesn't like a lot of Asian fusion or exotic spices. And she's noticed that... um, uh, lots of times in recipes, they put uh, more are made more healthy by uh, replacements with seasonings. But these seasonings seem too exotic for her. Is there a happy medium? So, one, do you have to eliminate the fat, reduce it, and what are substitutions in terms of seasonings that might not be so exotic <laughs> but still add flavor? <laughs> right. Well, I think um she's absolutely right on the second point which is that um the movement of global flavors into mainstream um uh supermarkets has been something of a uh a boon and a blessing for us and 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 the appetite that a lot of people do have for those because they're high flavor and often low fat ways of getting flavor into food so we do experiment with a lot of those and those those may be dishes that she's not as as fond of but we spend a lot of time addressing the first question how do you make everything from meatloaf to beef bourguignon to a classic bolognese sauce to to whatever it is a slow cooker um uh beef daub uh beef stew how do you what do you do to make that uh to make that taste as delicious as the original because we're not satisfied with things that don't um you know for example and it and, and the answer to that question is let us do the heavy lifting um and i'm not trying to push everybody back to using our recipes but our test kitchen is about solving those problems so if you see the you know the cover of the upcoming december issue is a slow cooker we did a whole bunch of classic slow cooker recipes um and it's a slow cooker beef stew and and we solve that problem and the way we do it is by figuring out ways to get more flavor in there that don't do what they don't change from being a French stew to a Thai French stew. But we, you know, we'll, we cut down, use a different cut of beef, trim it a bit more, use less added fat, brown it, make sure we brown the onions a bit more, maybe add something like a balsamic vinegar. Maybe that gives it a bit of more of a robust taste. It disappears. It's not, you know, I think everybody uses balsamic vinegar, but we go through multiple testings and we put a standard that says, look, if this doesn't taste like the original, unless we're trying to invent something completely new, that's not good enough. And so, yes, you do the portion. And it's also important though, that, you know, the traditional amount of say beef in a beef stew that, that, um, uh, we tend to eat is just a bit too much. So uh, less of that and and a little bit more whole grains to go with it or something like that is part okay. of the solution. So portion adjustment, yes, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, one listener wrote in and said, do you personally taste your test kitchen recipes? 
answer, yes. Uh, not just me, but a group of often there's t- eight or ten. Or yes, you can understand it's it's a pretty popular time around the office when the test kitchen uh, <laughs> rings the dinner, the lunch bell. Uh, but I try to taste probably 80% of what goes into the magazine. But our our food editor. Um, tastes 100%, as do our test kitchen people and most of our editors. So the answer is yes. We taste oh, absolutely everything. What a fun place to work with the <laughs> test kitchen and and tasting. This is great. I have other questions that have come in. Um, one is from London. Um, ask, are there alternative recipes for the upcoming holiday feast? Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners are such a traditional holiday that – I don't want to give it up. Right, and we don't, yes. Uh, the answer is that we have a brand new uh, 276 uh, holiday cookbook issue that's just out on newsstands now for the November Thanksgiving season, and it is just loaded with um, with traditional recipes that are a little bit lighter. Um, everything from appetizers and cocktails to you know pumpkin pie to uh, the turkey and the trimmings and all that sort of stuff. We we really go heavy on on that at Thanksgiving, including sweets and things to give away. And uh, we do that in both um, uh, both November and December. And we also you know we really try to address weeknight cooking. So we have a whole thing in November on what we call pure comfort casseroles. And again, uh, these are you know real rib sticking delicious things, everything from lasagnas to shepherd's pie and mushroom bacon casseroles and things like that that you might not expect. And those are all available online. So for someone in London who might not have the magazine, you can go to cookinglight.com and that content's being put up now. There's a lot of it. So dig in. Oh, that sounds great. Trisha from Mississippi wrote in saying, how bad is butter? And if it is bad, what is the best substitute for cooking? The answer is butter is not bad. Butter is one of um, the great gifts of the food world, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, one of the things that I had a real hard time when I went vegan was giving up dairy. Um, I, if I had to choose between giving up meat and giving up dairy, um, I would give up meat before I gave up dairy. And and we use a lot of uh, cheese and butter a lot. What we don't use is a lot of butter and cheese. So with us, uh, what we do is, for example, if you you know, we'll brown butter. Um, to get a real brown butter flavor and then use less of that and put that brown butter on top of something and just give it that delicious nutty butter flavor without having to use as much. Or we'll mix butter in, in pastry with some canola oil, 50-50, and then we, we have some real technicians who know how to get that same crumb and texture, right? Um, we even discovered when we decided to cook some grass-fed um, steaks, which were too lean, we bought a whole half, we bought half a cow and had it uh, cut up into portions, and we experimented with grass-fed beef because that's getting popular, but it was just right. too lean. And we discovered that the way to get real steakhouse flavor was at the last minute in a real hot pan, throw in a tablespoon of butter and let it sizzle in there. It adds very little fat because it's only a tablespoon. Um, Use really good butter. You know, there's really delicious butter out there and it would sear that steak and you would think that this was the fattest, most, you know, juiciest piece of meat you'd ever had and yet it had less than half the calories. So those are tricks that we use all the time. But we don't, you know, we simply don't use margarine, for example. We just simply don't. If you want butter flavor, you got to use butter. We just use less of it. Okay, that's great. Carol from Tennessee would like to know some healthy snack ideas. Well, um, again, I'll refer you online for, for, for dozens and dozens of them and tell you that in January we have an annual issue called Start Your Year Off um, Light, and that has a whole bunch of morning, noon, and midnight snack ideas in them. But in general, 
with snacking, which is a huge thing between meals, especially on the social diet, when you're getting yeah. hungry, you really need something. And what you want is something that satisfies and that doesn't have too much salt. Uh, on the other hand, you don't want to spend hours making your own granola, probably. I mean, some people do. But the fact is you're going to want some packaged things. The good news in supermarkets now, there's more unsalted products, there's more calorie portion products, and there's more variety. And you're looking for whole grain cereals. You're looking for... Um, uh, nuts certainly are really good, though don't eat too many of them, but they really pack a satisfaction factor in there. You're looking like some dried fruit can go deliciously with that. Uh, and we have a ton of ideas like that, even, you know, a hard cheese, just not too much. Um, but you want, you, you know, what you don't want is the sort of salty snack that doesn't really satisfy. What right. you want is something with actually has some calories, but also has that protein and maybe those whole grains, and that's where you want to focus. And then, of course, the free things, celery sticks, all that, are, are great too. So what have you been snacking on on the social diet as you've been losing the weight? Um, well, I do everything from what I just described, which is I have packages of uh, – of, um, uh, nuts and things like that sitting above my desk and, and some lower fat granola. I also am rather partial to kind bars. I don't know if you've eaten them. Yeah. They're about 180 calories, but they seem to taste good. You know, I'm not a big fan of the athletic protein bars. I think they taste very strange. They taste like a processed protein and, you know, five billion of them have come out and I frankly don't think most of them taste all, all that good. But those kind bars and there's some other varieties like that are really just natural products that are made into a, into a pretty delicious bar. So, you know, if I can take 100 180. We, we think our, your calorie on a snack should be around 150 probably, but if okay. I allow myself the 180, uh, I just unwrap one of those. Okay, that is great. And then, oh goodness, so many questions are coming in. Um, also, what is what are your thoughts about olive oil? Um, someone from Alabama, olive oil is touted for its many culinary, nutritional, and heart-friendly qualities. Do you agree? Are they all the same? Are olive oils all the same, or are there important distinctions to look for? Yeah, um, there, there are. Uh, first of all, olive oil is um, invaluable for two reasons. One is, yes, there is a lot of evidence that it has some heart-positive um, benefits. Um, the second thing is that it really tastes good. Um, uh, it's fat, it's high calorie, you know, any pure fat is, is high in calories. Um, but, but there's some evidence in, in population studies that it's, it's okay to eat, um, a higher proportion of fat in your diet. If it comes from those mono, mono and polyunsaturated sources, meaning from plants that most of those actually, uh, the amount you eat is, is, can be positive. It's just too much of it is very high calorie. So answer, yes, olive oil is, um, is great. Uh, to the question of do they differ, they differ unbelievably. Um, and frankly, I would advise people who are interested in olive oil to try and find a tasting. Go to a, uh, go to a, a, a specialty food store or go to a Greek store or go to an Italian store, and often they'll have tastings. Uh, some people really balk at the expense of, of, the, uh, of the really great oils, which are profoundly flavorful. Some of them burn in the back of your throat, which some people hate, but other people love. That's just the, some, you know, they're, they're, they differ in character. Um, but serve, use those expensive oils for drizzling on food, finishing some grilled um, fish at the end with a little drizzled olive oil, just a little bit of it, or across vegetables at the very end, asparagus, anything like that, onto toast, bread, bread you know, 
any of those things are just uh, delicious. And then you can buy a more mainstream oil for, for cooking. If you're going to really cook an oil, it will tend to break down its more delicate flavors. So you tend to want to have, I have probably five oils in my, in my, uh, in my kitchen, and I use some cooking oils. And, but even with the mass-marketed ones, I encourage people to taste them and find them because some of them can be a little rancid, and you'll notice after a while. Uh, so I really think people should spend uh, the time and some cases the money uh, on really great oil. And do you have a favorite olive oil that's in, in your pantry? Well, actually, I'm excited about um, what's going on in America right now. There's a company called the uh, California Olive Ranch that has got a lot of um, – a lot of uh, oils in mainstream supermarkets at pretty good prices. And I'm excited to see that industry coming out of California. Uh, and, um, and, and that impresses me. There's also a company called Lucini, which is pretty prominent that is doing some good oils um, in mainstream supermarkets, but they actually know the farmers in Italy and they go over there and they make sure that they're getting not industrial, what are called industrial processed oils, but because you can't read, trust the labels on all the olive oils. It's, there's a book called Extra Virginity, which really talks about how much doctoring of olive oil there really is. You really need to find a trusted brand and then support that brand. But yeah. those California oils are getting darn good, and, um, and I would recommend that people try them. That sounds great. Ellen from Tennessee, you were talking about vegetables. She was just curious if you've ever heard of the Tower Garden, which gives you the ability to grow your own fresh fruits through means of, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, aeroponics. So is that like air-based vegetation plants? What are your thoughts on that? Does that uh, I don't the taste, know. Or? I don't know what that is. It sounds like it might be um, almost a hydroponic thing on, on layers so that if you haven't got a lot of space, maybe you can grow them vertically or something. But I mean, we're, we two years ago started a, a really deep gardening program um, on, a, uh, on a garden near here. And we've raised over 100, 150 different heirloom vegetables, just experimenting with them. And uh, we love gardening. Um, you probably know that preserving and pickling is really uh, coming up. Uh, you know, the, a lot of people are reaching back to traditional practices and adding new flavors. Uh, and I think even when, you know, porch gardening, windowsill gardening, box gardening, anything that can bring some of those high flavor herbs or, or in vegetables or, or tomatoes into the house is just, it's so gratifying um, to do. And I just think people, you know, can experiment and, and really uh, just really reap the rewards. And it's a great way to get kids into cooking and eating those foods because they get very excited about things that are ripening in, in the house or, or yes. on the porch or in the backyard. Exactly. I actually have a lemon tree. I'm so excited that um, it's going to be spending the winter, Chicago winter, inside my sunroom. It was outside on the deck, and I, I'm amazed with these Meyer right. lemons. They're just oh, they're yeah, so, so good too. <laughs> so delicious. Yeah. Down um, here, as you know from being a native, yeah. the Satsuma um, uh, oranges are just fantastic, and they have them as far north as Birmingham, and they're really down on the coast. But it's so great. There's nothing better than citrus. You know, you get out to California or Arizona or Florida, and you see backyards that have all these abundant, you know, exotic citrus trees, and it just brightens the whole landscape. Yes, it does. And it's brightening my sunroom. I think I posted a picture I'll have to share again. And two other quick questions from listeners, sure. and then we're going to learn more about these wonderful um, books and um, uh, contests that's going on at Cooking Light. Um, Beth, who is in Chicago, uh, asked, she'd love to know the best foods and recipes for busy moms who need more energy without packing on the pounds. 
the best foods and recipes for busy moms. Well, the the the, the interesting thing about that is, and we we um, do a lot of family cooking in our September issue, and um, and I would urge her to go back and look online for um, we call it food on the move. Food on the move is basically um, reasonably quick and portable uh, dishes that, that you can you can put together. I mean, we like things like wraps, for example, or things that you can take in components. If you're having to take them out on the road, you can have them in, in components in one of those like bento box things and then assemble them when you get there so they're not soggy. Um, things that don't necessarily have to be refrigerated but are savory and delicious. Um, you know, all that kind of thing. We're big advocates of cooking ahead on Sunday uh, and things that you can portion out and take with you. Um, that kind of thing. I mean, we're, I don't know about your philosophy um, when your kids were growing up, but mine was always that you don't cook different food for yourself and, and your kids. You just, you, you try and find a happy medium that some kids really are stubborn about that. Others are more open. Right. I was pretty lucky, both my kids. So I, you know, I was snacking and eating the same food that I was giving to my kids and in some cases putting in their, in their lunchbox. I mean, I still love nothing better than a great sandwich. And it's, you know, miraculously transformed if you get great bread. You know, find a baker you like and really hang out there and get a crusty, a really crusty bread and then put roasted vegetables in it, a little bit of goat cheese, that kind of thing. Those kinds of foods yeah. don't have to be super high calorie and they can be very satisfying. Oh, I know. And then with the southern food, I miss my grits so much sure. and fried okra. <laughs> yes. Yep. Oh, yes. I know it's and not pickled okra. Life, Oh, yes, yes. I, I I love, yes, okra. I miss that. Um, one final question from a listener in Seattle who, of course, she must say, she put in, she goes, well, you know, all things are so healthy here <laughs> in Seattle. Uh, and she's just so intrigued that, you know, Cooking Light started this whole emphasis on healthy eating and healthy cooking. Uh, she was very interested in hearing from you what you see as uh, recent trends, of course, kale, quinoa. Um, what are you seeing as recent trends and what ingredients people are wanting in recipes? And secondly, she said, um, is, what is the deal with chia seeds, hemp seeds? Uh, is there a difference in there? And uh, what seems to be driving that as an ingredient for, for recipes as well? Well, um, I'll give the probably slightly impolite answer to the latter question, which is there's always a few food fads around, and I think those seeds are, I mean, they're perfectly nutritious, but I think they're sort of um, fads, and I don't. I haven't had anything with chia in it that I wanted to eat the second time. That may just be uh, prejudice on my part. Uh, they're perfectly healthy, but they don't have a lot of culinary promise as far as I'm concerned. As far as what's going on in trends, there's so much going on in trends right now that's so exciting that it's hard to, it's hard to pin, pin one. We have been amazed at the longevity of the kale phenomenon. Literally, quinoa and kale sometimes are the most searched item on our website, and it's like quite astonishing that a, that a deep green vegetable would suddenly become you know, the so-called superfood. Uh, and so we have a whole rash of really interesting kale recipes coming up. I like to take kale and then pour a hot vinaigrette on it because it wilts it a little bit and sometimes kale can be a little tough um, and so we'll even put a, a, a vinaigrette with a little bit of bacon in it and 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 put that over the over the kale and then add in our other ingredients and it's really wonderful um, certainly the heirloom and heritage grains are uh, exploding not just quinoa but farro um, Bob's Red Mill has got a fantastic new line of um, 
whole grains coming out. And I made that part of the social diet was to try different, different whole grains and cook them in the slow cooker, even in a rice cooker on a Sunday and then eat them through the week. I think that kind of thing. What's very exciting to me is I think an improvement in the quality of meat um, and more interesting cuts. And I really urge people to, to, to build a relationship with a butcher, even in a supermarket, and they will, they will know the difference between uh, one cut and another that you may not have heard of, which have so much flavor. You know, some of these tougher cuts can have unbelievable amounts of, of flavor in them, and I think people are more open to that. I'm certainly seeing more openness to different kinds of seafood, and we want to be sustainable in our choices because the oceans are being ravaged, but there are sustainable choices, and I'm seeing... Um, a really interesting thing there. But, you know, we have a thing in the November issue called Nine, Seven Simple Ways to Become a Better Cook. And one of them we talk about is, um, is, uh, is that meat issue and to know the difference between a skirt steak and a flap steak and a flat iron steak and a Sierra steak and a flank steak and how much incredible flavor in some cuts that are relatively low fat. Um, so the, that's a trend. And then the thing that the one reader was a little nervous about, or you, uh, uh, listener was a little nervous about, which is this global food thing that is sweeping the nation, the food trucks, the Korean taco mashups, the, uh, unbelievable, uh, interesting things that are happening all across the country, um, with those new foods and ingredients. I think there's a fearlessness now in a lot of young Americans that is just amazing. And we're going to, that's not going to stop. That is changing the fabric of food in this country for the, for the, for good. And yeah. it's just thrilling to see. And I love how you described in one of your blogs uh, just how America has truly become, you know, a global stew in terms of tastes, ingredients, dishes. It's just exciting to, to be here. And I'm just so thrilled about what Cooking Light is doing and, and bringing it all together in a healthy way and, and just also putting a, a modern twist on some of the traditional approaches. Yeah, yeah so. and you had, you had actually mentioned the cookbooks, and I would bring up um, those who – some of the questions, and we often get these sort of what I would call thematic questions, people who yeah. are trying to puzzle out how to approach things. You know, how do I approach meat or vegetables or traditional recipes? How do I, so the, the New Way to Cook Light, which is the book that you alluded to that won yeah. the James Beard Award, that was written by me and, and our fantastic um, food editor, Ann Taylor Pittman, who, by the way, comes from Mississippi. Oh. Um uh, is a guide to that. The, the, in one volume um, uh, are uh, tons of recipes that, and as well as real expl- explanations of techniques and ingredients that can really give you. There's like 400 recipes in here, and it really takes you through every part of the day, all the countries of the world, um, at very traditional hamburgers, uh, but tacos, um, risottos, um, you know, just just countless um, ways to achieve that portion and proportion thing preserve those traditional flavors, experiment with new flavors, understand the technique thoroughly, and then when you've used those recipes, you can move on in your own cooking to follow the principles. So um, not to shill, but I would encourage people to try the book and find it, and we're going to give you a couple to give away to your listeners, actually. um, Thank you so much. And also, I I understand you have a new book on photography. As I mentioned, you're an avid photographer, and you have Unforgettable Photography, 228 Ideas, Tips, and Secrets for Taking the Best Pictures of Your Life. Yeah, this was a side project. I, I became convinced a few years ago that when the photography revolution was taking off with social media and smartphones and all that, that, you know, obviously this is like the second great revolution in photography. The first one was the brownie camera, which, you know, I can remember people using brownie cameras and, and that, that 
literally changed the world. It got people, you know, it, it changed the world. Well, digital photography has done it again. And I thought, you know, rather than a nerdy book for people who are interested in f-stops and technology and all that stuff, I thought I would just do a book that was tips on how to take better pictures of the people you love. And there, and there, there are really ways to behave rather than ways to shoot. And I found a photographer named George Lang, who is an incredible photographer of his own family and friends. And essentially, I use his photography to show some incredibly simple things that people can do to bring joy and intimacy into personal photography in ways that they didn't before. You know, everybody at Thanksgiving get lines up everybody, takes that picture. That's a fine picture, but they do it every year, and you don't really, you know, do much else beyond that. And and I'm really trying to open it up and show how anybody, and this really, everybody who's read this has come back to me and said, I'm taking better pictures already. And it's called The Unforgettable Photograph. And you can get it on, on Amazon or in, in Barnes & Noble. But I, I thanks so much for bringing that up because it's not a cooking yes. life project. But I'm very passionate about the idea that photography is in a really meaningful way to communicate in the age of social media um, in a way that can be very personal and and not trivial, you know, and very important. Oh, that's so important. And another um, bit of communicating in social media, not only with the social diet, but a wonderful contest that Cooking Light is sponsoring right now about Bake a Second Batch contest. Could you share with our listeners this exciting news? Yeah, well, this isn't... You know, um, this is an idea that says there's there's no sweeter act of giving than simply baking a second batch of something around the holidays or, frankly, Valentine's or Mother's Day or any time and giving it to someone uh, and not necessarily just giving it to a friend, which is great, but maybe taking it down to the fire hall or the police station or um, an extended care home or anything like that. So we're trying to start a little bit of a movement, a real grassroots initially movement um, called Bake Second Batch, which simply says, and we have a bunch of recipes in the December issue, that simply says, why don't you bake second batch and give it away? And our staff is in Birmingham on December 8th is going to bake about 35 dozen uh, things, cookies and bars and things like that. And then uh, along with a local church, we're going to go and give some of this food to uh, a a neighborhood that's – in need. Uh, and this isn't about health, um, although they're all cooking light recipes. This is saying, you know, this is just saying it's nice to share and celebrate at the holidays. So online, we are going to give away some prizes and you can go online and find out what those are. But we want to encourage this um, uh, across the country. We don't see this as a one-time only thing. We want to start this little movement. And uh, it's very social media based. And we're asking people can um, share photos of themselves, not just of the food, but of themselves with their food and be able to uh, sort of pin it and uh, share them with the community. And that's just getting started. But if, if folks go um, to Cooking Light and enter Bake a Second Batch, it's not actually up right now, but it will be shortly. So make a note and put it up on your fridge. Bake a Second Batch Cooking Light and go online and um, and you'll find a landing page that uh, will take you through what the contest is. But I just want to emphasize the fundamental message here is really just about um, sharing. About sharing, and that's what coming to the table is about and being in the kitchen and and coming into the kitchen. And thank you so much, Scott, for sharing your recipes, your tips, and and, and just great insights into food and healthy living with, with me and my listeners here on Kitchen Chat today. This has just been so informative, and I am truly inspired. I'm going to join the social diet, Cooking Light Food Lover Social Diet, and listeners, uh, we are going to put a li- uh, link, a direct link to 
this fun, fun uh, diet as well as to the Cooking Light site where you can get the information about the Bake a Second Batch Contest. Scott, thank you so much for being on Kitchen Chat today. Margaret, it's been great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And listeners, remember during these busy times, just take a moment, sit down, and savor the day. Thank you for joining us today. If you're interested in Margaret's books, A Mother's Heart Knows, Pearl Girls Encountering Grit, Experiencing Grace, and Go Back and Be Happy, please just click on the covers on the webtalkradio.net page in front of you. Margaret would love to connect with you and hear from you. So join her on Twitter, Facebook, her blog, or click on this website to leave a note and share a recipe. Thank you again, and we'll see you here again for a new show next week.